right, so this evening we are continuing our study of God's plan for spiritual maturity, and we are doing this out of Galatians chapter 4. And spiritual maturity is one of those topics that makes its way into a lot of messages. It is central to so many different devotional guides and so many different small groups. Uh, There's literally a ton of books that has been written on this particular topic, and yet it is still incredibly challenging and is also incredibly confusing to a lot of believers. So the question that we're really getting down to is, how do you help someone who is a follower of Christ, how do you help that person mature in their faith? Is there a path that God lays out in Scripture? Not a man-made path, not a works-based path, but a path laid out by God in his word that leads people on a path towards spiritual maturity. So a lot of the answer to this is actually defined and comes back to how you define the word maturity. So if you define maturity by actions, then whatever plan you come up with is going to focus on helping people do the right things and avoid doing the wrong things. If your definition of maturity is based on knowledge, then a lot of how you define this will lean heavily towards biblical education and a person being able to share the right answers. Kind of like, here is a Christian script and these are your talking points. And we say, that person's mature, they know the right answers. If a person's understanding of maturity is based on activism, then a lot of this plan will emphasize people engaging in a host of good causes. Now, there is an element of all of those that come out in spiritual maturity. So I don't want to take away from any piece. I just want to say, let's make sure that we're defining maturity from the right perspective. So in order to define it the right way, we have to ask the question, what are we wanting to grow towards? Is there a plan on the other side? What do we want to see? If somebody comes to faith in Christ today, 2022, what are you hoping you're going to see by 2024, 2027, 2030? What do you want to see happen in that person's life? So a huge part for us is to go back. If we're going to understand what maturity is, we actually have to back up a few moments and we have to define what is the mission of the church. Every New Testament church has the exact same mission. Jesus set the mission. We are to preach the gospel to every creature. We're to get the gospel to the nations, and we are to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel, make disciples. Preach the gospel, make disciples. So somebody might say, okay, you're preaching the gospel, So what is a disciple? Well, based on a first century Jewish perspective, a disciple is someone who pursues their rabbi, watching him, imitating him, listening to him, so that they can become like him and pass on his teachings to others. A disciple is more than somebody who knows what the rabbi knows. A disciple is someone who is more than someone who does what the rabbi is doing. A disciple wants to be like their rabbi. That is a process of transformation. They want to become like the person they're following. That's key. 
becoming like our rabbi. Spiritual maturity is transformation into the character of Christ. Did you all hear me on that? Spiritual maturity, if you want to define what it's going to look like, it is transformation into the character of Christ. Now, if we define it like that, we're going to have to ask some hard questions. Here's the questions. Are lost people coming to faith in Christ because of the gospel? And are saved people being transformed into the character of Christ? Every bit of our church metrics has to come back to this. You can fill rooms with crowds. It doesn't mean you made a disciple. The the Great Commission is not fill the rooms. It's not draw crowds. It's preach the gospel and make disciples. So we got to come back and say, are we accomplishing what God has set out for us to do? So if we go back and say, is the gospel being proclaimed, are lost people getting saved and are saved people being transformed into the character of Christ, if we can say yes or it's moving in that direction, praise the Lord. That's a path going towards spiritual maturity. That's true spiritual growth. But if we look and say, I don't know if I see that, then we need to pause and say, what are we trying to lead people towards? It's possible that we can have all the right intentions in the world, but if you're leading them towards the wrong goal, it's not spiritual maturity on the other side. I love what Francis Chan says at one point in one of his books. He says, it's possible that we may be succeeding at things that don't really matter. Think about that for a moment. It's possible that we could have the entire wrong set of goals and we're saying we're achieving the goals. But if it's not leading towards disciples being transformed into the character of Christ, we've missed what it is that God has placed us here to do. Now I want to personalize this a little bit more. If spiritual maturity is defined by transformation into the character of Christ, does that describe you? When you're faced with a difficult situation, does the response of Jesus come out? When somebody asks you for advice, are your words what Jesus would share? When you look at where you are today, walking with God, desiring to walk in obedience, can you see the character qualities of your Savior being expressed through your life. Now, if you can say, yes, I see pieces, I think it's on the right path, praise God, that's awesome. But if you honestly, and that's the key, if you honestly say, I don't know that I see the character of Christ being lived. I know a lot of information about Jesus. I know a lot about the Bible. I've been in church a long time. When I get squeezed, there's a part of the flesh that comes out. 
When somebody asks me a question, I come back with my best intentions, my best wisdom. When, when I am pressed into things, what comes out is not necessarily Jesus. What comes out is my life prior to Christ, the flesh, the remnants of that sin nature. If that's where you are, listen, that's not a bad thing to recognize. It's a good thing to be honest with yourself and say, Lord, there's an opportunity that I'm missing here. So, Lord, may you grow me on this right path towards spiritual maturity. So, in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul addresses those who define maturity through the lens of legalism. And we've been addressing that for a number of weeks now. We talked two weeks ago and we gave a definition of this, and that is legalism is an attempt to gain and or keep good standing with God by adherence to God's law or works-based religion. Uh, legalism gives the appearance of spiritual maturity, but it actually leads believers back to a second spiritual childhood. Now today we're going to build on that foundation a little bit, and we're going to see exactly what God's plan for spiritual maturity looks like. So here's who this message is specifically pointed and geared towards. If you want to grow in your walk with God, this is going to be a message for you. If you're not sure if you're moving in the right direction, this is a message for you. If you love Jesus, but you're getting worn out in the Christian routine, oh, this is definitely a message for you. If you recognize legalistic tendencies in your life, but you don't know necessarily why they're bad or how to get out of them, this is a message for you. These messages are going back to help people see what are the dangers of a works-based system of trying to gain or keep the approval of God. And what is the joy, the freedom, the blessing that comes from walking in grace and by faith with God. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles tonight. Galatians chapter number 4. Galatians 4, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. I am not going to read the entire text in advance. Um, we need some extra time tonight for me to work through some thoughts, but we're going to read each of those different pieces as we get into those. So I'm speaking tonight, second part of a message on God's path to spiritual growth. Um, I'm going to ask you if you would. Let's go to God in prayer tonight. Heavenly Father, as we um, are about to get into your word, God, I am overwhelmingly reminded again and again that unless your spirit turns on the light, reveals our need, causes us, draws us, leads us onto the right path, then, Lord, the enemy has done such an incredible job of putting in what seems like good pieces that are actually stumbling blocks. Lord, we're praying that you remove the stumbling blocks. We're praying that you would reveal your truth in a way that only you can do. God, may we walk away tonight with a clear view of where we are currently at and what the path forward looks like. God will be grateful for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a quick review of what we covered the last time since that's now been two weeks ago. Last time we met and I gave the first part of this particular message, 
I shared a number of issues related to legalism. And this is not even all of them, but it kind of gets the table reset a little bit. I shared with you that legalism takes you nowhere fast. It seems to be about spiritual maturity, but in fact, it leads backwards to spiritual infancy. Uh, legalism has the appearance of righteousness. It looks like the right path, but Colossians 2, 23, it tells us with legalism, it has the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, but it is of no value against fleshly indulgence. Another one is legalism gives you a good list of things to do and a bad thing things to avoid. If you are a list person like me, like I said last time, that's like catnip. When you see a list, you're like, I want to do that. I like to check things off of a list. Legalism will give you every list and then some. The problem is you can't ever do enough. Every time you check off three, 30 other ones fall underneath of it. Every time you think you did well at one, you realize you did not do well at that. And there's another amount of condemnation, another amount of pressure and things that come with that. Here's something else I share. Legalism says if you obey the rules, God is pleased with you. Legalism facilitates comparison between people. A legalistic person will take what Scripture says and they do their own self-evaluation. They say, I'm doing good. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to church. I'm praying. I'm giving. I'm serving. I am good. And that person's not good. In fact, I don't even think they're serving. I didn't even see them here this last week. They probably don't have a quiet time. They probably don't spend time with God in prayer. It's really easy to start comparing yourself with other believers. Legalism is fuel to that fire. Another one is the coin of legalism has two sides, pride and guilt. Every accomplishment fuels our pride, and every failure fuels our guilt. Pride renders us useless in kingdom activity. Guilt leads to discouragement, embarrassment, anxiety, depression, and worthlessness. Legalism is dangerous. That's why there's almost an entire book in Galatians when Paul is saying, come off the path, come off the path, come back into grace, understand what Jesus has done for you. So to call people back from a walk of legalism, the Apostle Paul shares God's path for spiritual growth. Now, I, I, I want to give the broad view of this, and we're going to break it down piece by piece. Know from the very beginning, God's path is not flashy. God's path often seems cerebral. God's path starts with, here's truths that you have to know. You have to believe. You have to reckon upon. The reason God's path is often rejected is because in our excitement, in our enthusiasm, sometimes in our pride, we're like, I already know that. I know that. Just tell me what to do. Give me Three steps for a better prayer life. Give me four principles for a great devotional time. Give me a spiritual gifts test that I can take and then show me where to serve. Let me do something. Let me do something. Let me do something. The mind of a person who is off the path, it's all about do, 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 do. And here's where God starts. Know. Know the truth. 
know me. Know the path. If we start in the wrong position, it will lead to a lifetime of frustration, discouragement, despair. And at some point along the way, people just say, either I'm going to do the basics because I feel like I need to do something, or they'll say, I'm done with all of it because it doesn't satisfy. It was never meant to. Only Jesus can satisfy. When you replace Jesus with a list of things to do, you're going to end up on the other side worn out and still not knowing Jesus like you should. But when you start with Jesus and say, Lord, I want to know you, and by your spirit guide me as to what I am to do. When that's happening, it's not that it's either know or do. It is doing out of the overflow of knowing. It is starting with him and knowing him and knowing his word and knowing the truth and allowing his spirit to now prompt and motivate and empower the actions of our life. Otherwise, it's us trying to live it for God instead of him living it through us. So in this section, here's the big plan he's about to walk you through. When I say this is cerebral, I mean it's, it's cerebral. Here's basically what he's saying. He's going to remind us of what life was like before Christ. He's going to remind us. Key word, remind. He's going to remind us of what happened when we met Christ. Key word, he's going to remind and then he's going to show us who we are as a result of that encounter. Three parts. Before Christ, meet Christ, after Christ. Who we were, what Christ did, who we are. Prior to salvation, at salvation, after salvation. Do you all get the basic three parts of his plan that we're going to lay out tonight? Thank you. All right, otherwise we're going backwards here. So, all right, two weeks ago, I gave you the first part of this, and that is until the date set by the Father, we were, in the past, prior to Jesus, we were slaves of sin held under the guardian of the law. That was found in verses one through three. That's who we were. That was prior to salvation. Now, the Apostle Paul, if you'll remember, uses the analogy of a boy becoming a man. And when a boy was an infant, he might be the legal owner of a vast estate, but in the eyes of the law, he was still considered to be a child. He could make no legal decisions for himself. He was not mature enough to do things for himself. So for all practical purposes, he had no more freedom than a slave. But when this child became a man, he transitions from childhood into sonship, and he enters the fullness of his inheritance. This text says, until that time, he is under guardians and managers. Verse number two, people who would protect and prepare him for adulthood. In verse number three, he brings up an illustration. He brings it home to all of us. Look at his wording. So also we, he says, this is all of us. So also we, while we were children, we're held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. That's where we were prior to Christ. 
held in bondage, slaves of sin. Prior to Christ, that's where all of us were at, under the elemental things of the law and considered to be a child. These elemental things are the basics. It's the foundational truths, the ABCs of the faith. Like guardians and managers, the law protected us and prepared us for Christ and for adulthood. Now that brings us to our new information for tonight. Second part, when the fullness of time came, we were redeemed by God's Son and adopted as sons of God. When the fullness of time came, we were redeemed by God's Son. This is moment of salvation. This is what's happening at that moment and adopted as sons of God. So in verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem, key word, redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So verses 1 through 3, it refers to life before God in salvation. Verses 4 and 5, it describes what God did so that we might know God in salvation. So in verse number 4, it says, but when the fullness of the time came. Uh, That is an expression that refers to the time when the world was ready for the birth of the Savior. So let me pause. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, why exactly did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? Why didn't Messiah come right after the fall? Why didn't he come right after the flood? Why didn't he come maybe during some of the ministries of prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel? Why did he come 2,000 years ago and not at another time before? So what I'm about to say, please, please hear my heart in this. We don't know everything about God's timing. But what we can do is we can look back and say, here's some pieces that happened around that time. Pieces that happened within the world that allowed when the the Messiah came for the spread of the gospel to reach the ends of the earth fast. So what I'm about to say in this, this is not one of those things that you hold on to and say, that's exactly why he came. But rather, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about informed speculation. Uh, Maybe you might want to refer to this as, I don't know, uh, maybe a justified or informed guess as to what's going on. It's kind of looking at what was happening and saying, God, here's some things that seem like it made that timing right. So here's a few of those. It was the right time religiously. During the Babylonian captivity, Israel finally abandoned idolatry once and for all. After this point, it's not that they didn't still fail and rebel and even rejected Messiah. But as a people, they never returned to idolatry again. Combine that with the fact that the Old Testament scripture and the formation of synagogues for being used in community and education, the beauty of God's prophetic timetable. There was a part on this religiously that we look back in hindsight and say the time was right. Also, it was the right time culturally. 
Alexander the Great had thoroughly established Greek culture and language throughout the known world. Historians tell us that the Roman world was waiting for a deliverer. The old religions were dying. Old philosophies were shown to be empty and powerless to change a person's life. People were ready for something of substance. They were ready for someone who spoke with authority and somebody who had a heart of compassion. It was the right time culturally. It was also the right time politically. Rome had instituted what's referred to as Pax Romana or Roman peace. It provided economic and political stability. The apostles and other early preachers were able to travel freely throughout the Roman Empire for much of that time. They, they used an incredible system of roads that were created through the Roman government. It, it opened up the known world for the gospel to reach the ends of the earth in a short period of time. So politically, it was a good time. All of those pieces are coming together at the same time. And somehow in the mind of God, in the providence of God, in the planning and wisdom of God, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now let's pause. Did you notice both parts of his nature mentioned? 100% God, 100% man. As God, Jesus was sent forth. As man, he's born of a woman. In God's timing. Now based on these verses... For salvation to happen, remember his plan is, here's life before Christ, here's what Jesus did at salvation, and here's who you are as a result of that. So based on these verses, for salvation to happen, we know who came, God's son. We know how he came, sent by God and born of a woman. And we know why he came so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Beautifully laid out. Now, we discussed the word redeem back when we were in Galatians 3.13. It means to set free by paying a price. So in first century Roman culture, you could purchase slaves at any city within the Roman world. Now, a slave, once they were purchased, the owner had the right to do with that slave as they desired. They could either bring that slave in for service or listen, or they could set the slave free. Listen to the words of your Savior. John 8, 36, whom the Son sets free, his free indeed. Galatians 5.1, where we're about to get to, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Jesus did not redeem us to make us his slave. He redeemed us to make us his son. He set us free to become who he created us to be. Now, take that idea and now let's bring it into our third piece that we've already talked about who we were prior to salvation and what Christ did at salvation. Now here's the third piece. Because we are sons of God, we are treated as heirs of the king. Okay, this is who we are after salvation. Notice the entire trinity is involved in our spiritual experience. Verse number six, because you are sons, 
God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Listen to the beauty of this. God the Father sent the son to die for us. And God the Son sent the Spirit to live in us, John 14. It starts with this phrase, because you are sons. Remember, prior to Christ, what happened at salvation, who are you as a result of that? Here's why this is so important. If we don't pick up this idea of what it looks like to be a son, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to act like a slave. You will be enslaved to a process saying, I got to do more, I got to work more, I got to get this in. I, you got to see who he has now made you to be. He has made you to be a son. All of this starts with because you are sons. And what he's about to do is show the difference between being a slave and being a son. And each statement that I'm about to give you is going to come out of what's referred to as positional truth. There's going to be two positions. I'm going to see whether or not I can do this. This is a part of my ongoing process of trying to figure out how I can illustrate this point. So hopefully you all can see these fine little pieces right here. So positional truth is one chair. Prideful action is the other chair. Here's what I'm going to try my best to illustrate by the time tonight is done. Whichever chair you're sitting in will determine the growth in your life or the lack thereof. The issue is you got to be in the right chair. This chair goes towards spiritual growth and maturity. This chair leads to cycles of discouragement, cycles of depression, ups and downs, problems where you just keep saying, I, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. You will mentally beat yourself to death sitting in this chair right here. This is the chair of slavery. This is the chair of sonship. The issue is we got to be in the right chair. Now, here's the reason I put them as chairs. Because according to what the word of God tells us, you are in Christ. Christ is in you. Your position, this is your seat. This is what it looks like to be a son. Your, your positional truth, this is where you are. When you step out of this, you're going backwards. This chair will not get you where you want to go. This chair will lead you to a lifetime of discouragement. So this is not in my notes, so you're going to have to go old school on some note-taking here. This is, this is hot off the press. Sometimes you're like serving stuff out. This is literally like God's cranking this out this afternoon in my mind. So write these statements down. Chair one, and, and listen to how I define this. Starting with positional truth, starting with positional truth leads to spirit-led efforts and faith-based victory. Starting with positional truth leads to spirit-led efforts and faith-based victory. The mindset of a person sitting in this chair is, God, I can't, but you can through me. 
the mindset of a person sitting in this chair is what should I know for God to live his truth through me? This chair, positional truth, these are the truths that you believe in, you reckon upon, you accept as fact. They are the ones that undergird your actions. Now let's talk about this other one, prideful action. That's your second chair. Starting with prideful action leads to legalistic efforts and flesh-based defeat. Starting with prideful action leads to legalistic efforts in flesh-based defeat. The mindset of somebody sitting in that chair is I can if I know enough, practice enough, and can do enough. The mindset of the person in that chair is what should I do so that I can live these truths for God? Do you notice the difference between the two? This is what should I know so that God can live the truths through me. This is what can I do so that I can live it for God. One of the most dangerous things that we can say, and I, I want to be so careful with my verbiage on this, one of the most dangerous things you can tell someone is Jesus died for you, the least you can do is live for him. You know what you just did? You just put them under a mountain of guilt. You positioned them right here in this chair under guilt for the rest of their lives until the word of God and the spirit of God can come through and say, let me tell you who you are. You're not a slave, you're a son. This is the seat that I made for you. This is the seat of freedom. This is positional truth. This is how you have to know who you are because what you believe matters. Our actions flow out of our beliefs. If you've got the wrong beliefs, it leads to the wrong actions. So when I say starting with positional truth, the reason I say that is at every point along the way, you're starting another part of this race. you got to keep coming back to this chair again and again. And when you're facing the next challenge, you say, all right, Lord, how do I start from here moving forward? You come back to positional truth. Here's what we do. This is why, it's again, it's sneaky how the enemy does it. What happens is Christians will say, I've been a Christian 20 years. I don't need to know that old stuff, just tell me what I should do. And they try to do in the flesh what only the Spirit of God can do in a person's life. This seat is not made for you. This is the seat of religion. Every religion in the world has this seat. Every religion is saying, here's what you have to do or believe in order to please and or appease the God or the gods or the universe. It's all about your actions meriting God's favor. That's religion. This is Christianity. <laughs> Jesus said, you can't ever do enough. Even your righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God. 
Our best efforts are never going to be good enough. If you couldn't do enough to save yourself, you'll not be able to do enough to sanctify yourself. It comes back to positional truth. So because of that, notice the sequence in what he's doing. Remember who you were. Remember what Christ did to save you. Now here it is. And now reckon upon these truths. Let them sink in. Believe them. This is how you see a contrast between being a slave and being a son. This is in your notes. A son has the same nature as the father. A slave does not. When you place faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to reside within us, John 14, 17. And we are, here it is, partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1, 4. This is beautiful. The law could never give you God's nature. The law could only reveal your sinful nature and his holy nature. He couldn't switch your nature. But remember, you're a son. This is the difference between mentally believing what God has declared versus sitting in the wrong chair. Here's the next one. The son obeys out of love. The servant obeys out of fear. The spirit works in the believer's heart to increase our love for God. Uh, Galatians 5.22, it says the fruit of the spirit is love. Romans 5, 5, it says, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you'll remember what I had shared earlier in our study of Galatians, the Judaizers told the Galatians that by submitting to the law, it would make them better Christians, but the law can never produce obedience. Only love can produce obedience. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Notice the fact the commandments were not gone. The motivation and the enablement and the empowerment for walking in obedience comes out of the love seat. It's position. Here's the next one. The son is rich. The servant is poor. <laughs> Since we are adopted and placed in as adult sons in the family of God, we can draw from our inheritance that is in Christ Listen to the beauty of this. As sons of God, we have access to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7. The riches of his glory, Philippians 4.19. The riches of his goodness, Romans 2.4. And the riches of his wisdom, Romans 11.33. According to Colossians 1.19, all the riches of God are found in Christ. Where are you seated? In Christ. In Christ. Believers often are living like spiritual paupers when they are heirs and joint heirs with the king. The inheritance is ours. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. This is your position in Christ. But if, if, if you think it's up to me to do it myself, you don't draw from the spiritual account that you have in him. What do you draw from? your best efforts, your best discipline. I was able to get three quiet times last week. Next week, hopefully I can make it four. I didn't totally cuss the person out when they slammed on the brakes in front of me. That's a step in the right direction. 
Next week, I'll go from five cuss words to three. Like, it's all up to your best efforts. That's wearisome. Oh, but there's freedom here. There's freedom. Two chairs. Two chairs. Ask yourself right now, what chair are you currently sitting in? Because this one requires you to reckon upon the truths of who you are in Christ, of what he has done for you, of the riches that he has offered you. Next one. The son has a future. The servant does not. While some kind masters may have provided for their servants in old age, it was not required of them. But the father, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 14, is always to provide for the son. What you believe matters. Look at what it says in verse 9. I, I know I'm going a little bit over tonight, but Lord willing, we'll, we'll sometime work our way through this. Verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, oh, listen, or rather be known by him. Did you, did you see that? Did you see that? He's like, oh, it, it's not even about you. Rather, you're known by him. It says, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? So starting now in verse number 10, he specifically describes some of those weak and worthless elemental things. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Uh, the days are a reference to Sabbath. Months refers to an observance of the new moon practiced by the people of Israel all the way back through the time of the kings. At times, it refers to seasons or the feast. God had given his people seven different feasts, and all of those feasts pointed towards Christ. Years, it refers to the sabbatic years or the year of jubilee. It happened every seven years. That's when debts were released and fields were not cultivated and slaves were freed and people would rest from their work. Now, by observing those different things, the days and the months and the years, to keep your life on track... He's saying you're going backwards. So let me ask, is it wrong for believers to celebrate the birth of Christ or the resurrection of Christ? No, not a bit. But listen, it can be an issue if you're observing those days slavishly, feeling compelled to do something, trapped by them, condemned for not doing certain things, if we're hoping that by celebrating those days, we somehow have greater spiritual merit before God by participating, if that happens, you're moving back into legalism again. But if you celebrate those days as an opportunity to worship and to reflect upon your Savior, that's a blessing. Finally, he says in verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. There's not a lot of times in the writings of Paul that it seems like he almost hit a point of discouragement. He's gone through a lot of times, but he has a way to spin back into the positive, into what God's doing. The word he uses for labor, it speaks of fatigue, hard work, toil, and weariness. It's a word that implies difficulties and troubles that have accompanied the task. Paul's saying, 
I'm afraid that perhaps my labors, my weariness, my toils, the problems I've gone through, it's not actually produced what it needs to produce in you. My labors have been in vain. That statement gives me two thoughts, and I close. First thought, ministering the gospel is hard work. If you care about a person's walk with the Lord, you don't just slap a message together and hope it sticks. If you want to disciple someone effectively, it's going to take hours being in his word, sitting with him in prayer over those that you're serving. Ministering the gospel is hard work. Keeping eyes locked on Jesus and not captured by the shiny things of this world, it's hard. If you're going to be about the work of discipling people and ministering the word of God over people, expect that difficulties and problems are going to come. Fatigue is going to come. Weariness is going to come. But there is a difference between being weary in the work and being weary of the work. When you're weary in the work, you can go to bed at night, wake up the next day, and you're ready to roll again. When you're weary of the work, you wake up the next day and your heart's still discouraged. There's no drive. There's no desire. You get overwhelmed. Can I tell you? This is the only seat that allows you not to grow weary of the work. Here's what God taught me on this one. And by the way, so much of this is just off script. I don't know what I mean. I just keep sitting back and forth between chairs and talking to you. There was a particular time when we were planting the church in Vegas and I was upset with God. I was discouraged. It seemed like every time somebody would come to faith in Christ and we had disciple them, all of a sudden they moved to a different part of the country. They moved around the world. And then there were people that you would disciple and you'd pour into for three months, six months, nine months. The next thing you know, they were back doing the same things that they did beforehand. I was like, did they not get it? Did I not share things effectively? And I was out in my garden, and I was just working, processing, praying. And all of a sudden, this thought came into my mind. If you have to build the church, you will have to maintain it. If it's up to me to bring the change, it's up to me to keep the change. The only thing more discouraging than a church not going forward is a church going backwards. And in the garden, here's what Jesus reminded me of. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. As long as this is the seat that we try to act from, live from, lead from, discouragement is always going to be there. Here's where the freedom's at. 
I'm just going to close by saying this. Not only is ministering the gospel hard work, but here's my next statement. It's sad to see people who are set free by Christ but are living in self-imposed bondage. That describes so many within the church today. Have the riches of God at their disposal and acting as though they're poor. Have a seat at the table and yet still trying to do it themselves. So ask yourself, which seat are you in? Which one are you operating from? If it's here, keep going. It'll lead to maturity. If it's here, get out now. Get out now. This will never get you where you want to go. Get out now. There's the right seat for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Lord, may your word be clear. God, I pray that tonight I've not done anything to confuse that in the minds of people. God, may hearts be renewed. May there be hope. May there be life. May there be joy. God, I pray that we would sit in the seat of positional truth. Lord, I'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful evening. See you this next week.